Well, it is all about Jesus, isn't it? Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 27. We're going to finish our study of the fourth section of the book of Isaiah in chapters 24 through 27. We didn't quite finish last week, so we're going to begin by wrapping that up by briefly summarizing chapter 27, and then we're going to move on today into the fifth major section of the book, which is chapters 28 through 35, and we'll kind of at least get started in our study of that next section. So let's pick up where we left off at the end of chapter 26. And if you recall, in that fourth section, chapters 24 through 27, there's kind of some major themes. Chapter 24, the major theme is the tribulation judgments. Chapter 25 are the kingdom blessings that uh, Messiah is going to bring when he returns. Chapter 26 talks about salvation by grace through faith. And chapter 27, which we're going to be looking at as we begin, is an exhortation to make peace with God and a warning that if you refuse to do so, you will perish. So really the theme of chapter 27 is make peace or perish. Look at Isaiah chapter 27 beginning in verse 1. It says, In that day, and that of course is a reminder that this is looking towards the end times, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Now, as you read that, that's probably one of those verses as we come across Old Testament prophecy that just kind of leaves you scratching your head. What is this talking about? Well, let's kind of start by just breaking it down a little bit. First, the first thing I want you to know is that Leviathan is described in the book of Job and in great detail. And this was a very fearsome sea creature. It was a real animal. It's one of the many species which have since gone extinct. But Leviathan was a very fearsome sea-dwelling creature that created great fear in those that encountered it and uh, those uh, the sailors who uh, would describe it. In fact, it was such a powerful and dangerous creature that ancient people were extremely afraid of it. It was viewed as the most dangerous and fearsome of all of the creatures of that time, and therefore it became a symbol in ancient people's minds for the things they fear the most, the powers of evil and darkness. And Therefore, it became used as shorthand in some ancient literature as a symbol of Satan himself, of the serpent of old. For example, there is a Ugaritic writing originating in the land of Canaan, which says, quote, When thou dost smite Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, and shall put an end to the torturous serpent. Now, the phrasing of that Ugaritic writing and the wording of Isaiah 28.1 is so similar that it's likely that Isaiah is intentionally referring to that Ugaritic saying. And he's referring to it in order to drive home a point. He is saying that in the end times, the powers of evil that the peoples of the world most fear will all be conquered by the Lord. Even Satan's dark power, as symbolized by the fearsome Leviathan, is going to be defeated. And in the book of Revelation, uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are, are referred to by these terms like the dragon, the beast, 
the serpent of old. And so Isaiah chapter 28 verse 1 is saying that in the end times, Satan himself and all the powers of darkness, all the things that the peoples of the world fear most, the things which are too powerful for them but are not too powerful for the Lord, the Lord will defeat evil. Then in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 27, we see what's called the second song of the vineyard. Look at verses 2 through 6. It says, In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Now this is called the second song of the vineyard because if you recall back from our study of chapter 5, the first song of the vineyard is recorded in chapter 5 and the first song of the vineyard is a lament. It laments the terrible condition of Israel which is described as a vineyard. In fact, the first song of the vineyard laments the spiritual barrenness of Israel. In that first song of the vineyard, the vineyard is described as being trampled and overrun by evil and as producing only worthless fruit. In fact, if you remember, the Hebrew term used there literally means stinky fruit or stink fruit, rotting fruit. So the first song of the vineyard is a lament. The prophet is looking at the deplorable condition of the nation and seeing that it's not producing spiritual fruit and is mourning over the trampled down condition of God's vineyard. This second song of the vineyard, therefore, is an amazing expression of hope and of faith because it begins with the phrase in that day there's going to be in the future a second song sung about the vineyard and in that day when the Lord restores the vineyard the people will sing not a lament but now a song of rejoicing because why verse 3 God says I the Lord am its keeper I water it every moment so that no one will damage it I guard it night and day I have no wrath the first song of the vineyard warned Israel about judgment to come, but now in the end times, the Lord is going to declare that his wrath is over. It has been fully assuaged, and we know, of course, in context we, that his wrath is assuaged by the death of his son. Here in the second song of the vineyard, we also have a, an appeal made to people to reconcile with God so that they can experience this peaceful vineyard to come verse 5 let him rely on my protection let him make peace with me let him make peace with me so the vineyard will be restored and an invitation is given for those who have yet to repent to make peace with the Lord and then notice how the song ends it says in verse 6 in the days to come so yes, the vineyard right now is in a deplorable condition, but in the days to come, Isaiah says, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Remember, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. God had chosen this tiny little nation and placed them right at the crossroads of the continents 
right on the main highways connecting the continents and had made them to be a light to the Gentiles. They were a vineyard which was supposed to produce great spiritual fruit, but because of disobedience and unbelief, the first song says they produced only stink fruit. But a day is coming in which Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. This is looking towards the end times in which there's a great national revival of Israel, and they are saved in huge numbers, and then they go out to the whole world preaching the gospel and fill the whole world with gospel fruit. That is a glorious day, and it is coming. But until then, we still live in a fallen world, And that fallen world is still under the curse of sin that was brought about by the fall in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And sadly, in Isaiah's generation, most of the people had rejected God's offer of peace. He had said, let him make peace with me, let him make peace with me. Only a believing remnant had done that. The others had rejected. And so, though the fourth, the end of the fourth section ends with this glorious anthem of of hope and of restoration in the future, the fifth section then returns to warnings. Warnings on those who would reject God's offer of peace. So in the fifth major section, we're transitioning now from the fourth section to the fifth section, which is in chapters 28 through 35. In the fifth major section of the book of Isaiah, a series of woes is announced on those who remain unrepentant. These are warnings to those who refuse to respond to the invitation of God to reconcile. And in chapters 28 through 35, there are six woes that are announced by God. Number one, woe to the drunkards. That begins in chapter 28, verse one. Secondly, woe to spiritual apathy, chapter 29, verse one. Number three, woe to those who live a double life, chapter 29, verse 15. Number four, woe to rebellious children who refuse to listen, chapter 30, verse 1. Number five, woe to those who trust in human power, chapter 31, verse 1. And number six, woe to tyrannical rulers. So six woes, woe to the drunkards, woe to the spiritually apathetic, woe to those who live a double life, woe to the rebellious children who won't listen, woe to those who trust in human power, and woe to the tyrannical rulers. Six woes, six warnings. Now as we're going to see, this section as well ends like the last section did with a glorious passage of hope and of coming salvation but first we need to pay attention to these warnings. So let's look at the first warning, the first woe, which is in chapter 28. Woe to the drunkards. Woe to the drunkards. That's in chapter 28, verses one through 29. So look at chapter 28, verse one with me. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent, has a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden under foot. Woe to the drunkards. Now it's 
I think interesting and instructive that the first sin that is mentioned as the Lord rebukes his wayward people is drunkenness. It's at the top of the list. I want you to just think for a moment how much human misery has been caused by drunkenness. Where there is domestic violence, almost always alcohol is involved. Where there are tragic accidents, often alcohol is involved. Where there are people who destroy their lives in various ways, alcohol is often involved. It is and has always been one of the leading causes of death amongst human beings, whether by disease, accident, or just a manner of life which is completely unhealthy. Drunkenness is destructive, and it is a serious evil. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 in the New Testament warns us that getting drunk is the opposite of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it warns us that being drunk leads to dissipation. In fact, it says it is dissipation. Dissipation being indulgence in all kinds of evil. When you talk about a gateway drug, alcohol should be at the top of the list. Because it is a gateway, not only to other mind-altering substances, but it is a gateway to dissipation, to many other forms of evil, to sexual immorality and to rage and violence and many other forms of wickedness. How many broken homes are primarily rooted in this evil, the evil of drunkenness? How many abusive fathers harm their children while intoxicated? How many abusive husbands harm their wives while intoxicated? How many people end the lives of fellow motorists while intoxicated. Being drunk with wine is dissipation. And it is a great evil. Here in Isaiah chapter 28, the disastrous effects and consequences of drunkenness are powerfully laid out. And I just kind of want to walk you through some of the things that this chapter says about drunkenness. First, drunkenness is caused by pride and leads to pride. Drunkenness is connected with irrational pride. Look at 28 verse 1. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Woe to the proud crown. Verse 3 says, The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. Pride is at the root of drunkenness because if you talk to a drunk, they will always start boasting about how they can hold their liquor, they can control it, they can stop anytime they want, it's not a problem for them, you're blowing it way out of proportion, they're stronger than, than you think, they're better than you think, they don't have a problem, they're in control, they're fine, don't worry, it's okay. Pride. Pride is what begins that dark journey. Yes, I know that, you know, the preacher has warned against it. My parents have warned against it, but I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. I can handle this. And millions begin that way and end in tragedy. Drunkenness is 
caused by and also connected to irrational pride. Drunkenness is self-destructive. Look at verses three through six. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. There's a contrast here between what the Lord will do and what alcohol has already done and is doing. The proud crown is going to be trodden underfoot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty. How many just truly beautiful people have had their lives drugged down into degradation by alcohol. It's self-destructive. Next, notice that drunkenness causes confusion. Look at the beginning of verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. Drunkenness causes confusion and therefore deception. Next, notice that drunkenness impairs judgment. Look at the end of verse 7. They totter when rendering judgment. It impairs judgment and therefore leads to great injustices. You know, when we talk about the abusive context in families, obviously we kind of think of the drunken father, you know, physically abusing his children. But what about the slightly inebriated father who's trying to resolve a conflict between his children? He doesn't resolve that conflict with justice because his judgment is impaired. How many fathers have tottered while rendering judgment? How many judges and people in law enforcement have had their judgment marred by intoxication? It impairs judgment, therefore perverts justice. Next, drunkenness mars the image of God with filth. Verse 8, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. I've had the need on several occasions to pull people out of their vomit. I one time was had to pull a guy who was trying to vomit over the side of a canal with a kind of concrete ledge, a lot like the stage. If he had tumbled into that, he certainly would have drowned. He was crawling there to vomit and was tottering on the end. I had to grab him by his belt and yank him back. But drunkenness mars the image of God with filth. People are made in the image of God and drunkenness leaves them filthy in their own vomit. I one time had to pull a man out of the snow. He had started removing all of his clothing because he felt he was burning up because he had just, you know, he had been consuming such hard liquor. Really, he's freezing to death. He had soiled himself. Had his pants down and his shirt off and had to try to pick him up and pull his pants up and carry him in his filth back home. Drunkenness mars the image of God. People are made in God's image. Drunkenness is like taking a bucket of vomit to a museum 
and dashing it on a masterpiece. You are the crown of God's creation. How dare you mar it with vomit and filth? Next, drunkenness prevents hearing from God. Look at verse 9. To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? You see, intoxication reduces you to the intellectual reasoning and communication levels of a small infant. So to whom can God teach his knowledge? To whom will he interpret the truth to those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, those who are like babbling infants, will they be able to hear the word of the Lord? Drunkenness prevents you hearing from God and understanding his truth. Next, verses 10 through 13, drunkenness reduces people to infantile babbling. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. By the way, as I'll explain that a little bit. These lines could be translated in English as blah, 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 blah. I'll explain that in a little bit. Verse 11, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So, the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. As I'll explain in a little bit, these lines, order on order, order on order, sound in Hebrew like the babbling of an infant. That's what drunkenness reduces people to. And drunkenness always ends in disaster and tragedy. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. This is the result of drunkenness. To stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. You will be enslaved. Verse 14 says that drunkenness is a form of scoffing at God. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. It's a form of scoffing at God, and it is akin to making a pact with death. Look at verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will, scourge will not reach us when it passes by. They think they've made a covenant with death. Oh, I'll never be one of those who dies of alcohol poisoning. I'll never be one who dies of liver failure. I'll never be one who is killed or kills in a drunk driving accident. I remember being called by a broken-hearted woman and asked to come to her house. And I came there and met a gentleman. He had had a master's degree in theology from a great seminary. He had served in ministry for years. And then he had some disappointments in life, turned to the bottle and literally drunk himself to death. When I was standing at his bedside, his eyes were yellow from liver failure and he was in great agony but even as he lay dying from the obvious effects of a life of drunkenness he denied he had a problem 
That's why the end of verse 15 says that drunkenness is covered up by lies and deception. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. The drunk is a liar. The drunk seeks refuge in falsehood, conceals with deception. To earn some money for college, my teens are cleaning out and rehabbing this abandoned house. And um, you know, we're finding some surprises in there. You, know, you pull out some old drywall and you know find 40 mice carcasses. Yeah, that's one form of surprise, one that you can kind of expect from an abandoned house. But this house has held some other surprises. There was a toilet paper holder in the bathroom and it was kind of built into the wall, which is unusual. Looked terrible, we decided to swap it out. Pull out the uh, toilet paper holder and there's a hole in the wall behind it. Hmm, what's in the hole? And then down in there is just inside the wall, just bottle after bottle of hard liquor. Pull down an old light fixture, hidden behind the light fixture, bottles of liquor. And you wonder, how did this house get in such terrible condition, abandoned, foreclosed? How, how did it happen? Drunkenness, drunkenness. And everywhere in that house, in all of these nooks and crannies, are the evidence of deception. We have made falsehood our refuge. We have concealed ourselves with deception. Drunkenness will lead you to a life of deception and lies because you will try to hide your problem from your spouse, from your kids, from the people who try to help you, from everyone who loves you. So drunkenness causes irrational pride, it's self-destructive, causes confusion, impairs judgment, mars the image of God with filth, prevents hearing from God, reduces people to infantile babbling, ends in disaster and tragedy, is a form of scoffing at God, is like making a pact with death, and is covered up by lies and deceptions. Drunkenness is a terrible sin. And it is a terrible sin not only because of all of its consequences, but because it is a form of idolatry in which people substitute alcohol for God. It is a direct swap whether you think it is or not. Ask yourself the question, why do people drink to excess? Why do they drink to excess? Well, talk to them and they'll tell you. Or just listen to a country song. Right? First of all, people drink to forget their troubles, don't they? They drink to forget their troubles. But think about this. The Holy Spirit's name is the comforter. They drink for comfort, to forget their troubles, but the Holy Spirit is the comforter. They are making a swap. They're swapping out the comforter for comfort in a bottle. People say, well, I drink to feel more confident. A little bit of liquid courage, they say. But the scripture says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Direct swap. People drink to calm down when they're anxious. I just need something to calm me down. Just relax me a little bit. But the scripture says, cast all your cares upon Christ, for he cares for you. Most of all, I think the number one reason that people drink is to squelch guilt. They drink to squelch guilt. 
Guilt is a torturous thing. The psalmist describes it as God's hand being on you day and night. And many people drink to squelch guilt from their regrets. But it just creates a vicious cycle. You drink to squelch the feelings of guilt. Then you wake up the next day not even remembering what you did while intoxicated. Did you cheat on your spouse? You hope you didn't. Can't be sure. Did you enrage strike someone? Hope you didn't, but can't be sure. Drunkards go out to check their vehicle in fear they may have run over some kid, hoping they didn't. They drink to squelch the guilt, but the drinking itself creates more guilt. And so they drink again and again and again and again and more and more and more, never able to be free from guilt because there's only one thing that actually removes guilt, and that is the gospel of Christ. And so alcohol becomes a direct substitute for the gospel. Rather than turning to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, to his grace, his love, rather than turning to him, they try to squelch guilt with liquid forgiveness. So people use alcohol as a substitute for God himself. They try to get from booze the comfort, benefits, and blessings that can only come from God. They are trusting in alcohol. Their faith is in alcohol. They have a God in a bottle. They trust alcohol to be their savior from guilt, from depression, from anxiety. They trust in alcohol to give them confidence, joy, fellowship, friendship, relationship. And since they treat alcohol like it is their savior, it is no wonder that it becomes their Lord and then enslaves them, dominates them, destroys their morals, their health, their finances, their marriages. If you treat alcohol like your Savior, it will become your Lord. And it is a terrible God. A cruel God. All who bow before this idol will learn the hard way that it promises life but delivers death. It promises happiness but brings misery. It promises friends but leaves you alone in your own vomit in the end. It promises popularity but brings you shame. It promises a party but leaves you in a gutter. Its end is a crushing headache. Its end is a puddle of your own vomit. Its end is filth. Its end is judgment. Its end is destruction. So don't turn away from God to bow to this idol. Instead, heed the exhortation of Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Isn't it ironic that we call alcohol small s spirits? Don't be filled with the spirits, be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In other words, the way out of enslavement to alcohol or any other mind-altering substance is to cast away this terrible idol and turn to the real thing. Cast away your idol, pour it out, throw it away, get rid of it and turn to Christ. Turn to God for true relief from guilt, to give you true comfort, true joy. This is 
what the drunkards of ancient Israel were being exhorted to do 2,700 years ago, and God is still sending that message today. Look at the exhortation in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed or disappointed or let down. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. Turn to Christ. Let him sweep away the web of lies and secrets that have enslaved you. Let him cancel your covenant with death and give you new life. And the end of verse 16 says, whoever believes will not be shaken, disturbed, disappointed. This is one of the most often cited Old Testament verses in the New Testament. Whoever believes in him won't be let down. Alcohol promises much and delivers not only little but misery. But if you trust in the Lord, you won't be disappointed. Those who rely upon alcohol often can't conceive of functioning in life without it. How could I get by without it? This is what I rely on. It's, 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 like, it's, a, it's, it's what I lean upon. Oh, friend, you're standing on thin ice. Step off the thin ice onto the costly cornerstone leveled with justice and righteousness, placed firmly. And those who take their stand on the foundation of Christ will never be shaken, never be let down, never be disappointed. So if you are hearing this message, either here or online, and you are enslaved to alcohol or some other mind-altering substance, I want to encourage you to repent. Repent. Turn away from that sin and then replace what that substance did in your life with the Holy Spirit. Repent and replace. You turn to alcohol for comfort, turn to the Holy Spirit for comfort. You turn to it for liquid courage. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means letting the word of God dwell in you richly. It means praying continually. It means filling your mind with the word of God, serving him, devoting your life to him. You gave your money to alcohol. Devote your money to serving the poor and helping the, the work of the Lord to go forward. You gave alcohol your time. Give your time to the service of the Lord and meditation upon his word and prayer. You let it dominate your relationships. Transform your relationships. Put a new center around your friendships. Don't center it on drunkenness. Center it on the things of God. Repent and then replace. There's grace for you. Grace which forgives and grace which transforms, so turn to Christ. If you don't, the warnings of the rest of the chapter will apply to you. In verses 18 through 29, there are warnings given. The last part of 18 says that those who don't repent will be trampled by the overwhelming scourge. Verse 19 says your addiction will seize you morning after morning and cause sheer terror. Verse 20 says that you will find that sin is as frustrating as a bed that is too short to stretch out in and is as cold as a blanket too small to wrap oneself in. You're relying on 
alcohol for things only God can do. Alcohol is like a bed too short to stretch out in. It's like a blanket too small to cover yourself in. You will find yourself miserable and shivering if you trust in this idol. And verses 21 through 29 says that if you continue on, you will face the Lord's discipline. So the message of Isaiah 28, the main message is that drunkenness brings nothing but woe. Nothing but woe. So don't go down that path. Don't even start that path. And if you're on that path, no matter whether you're fairly, you know, you're not that far, at least you're telling yourself you're not that far down that path, but you know you have a problem, or whether you're deep down that path, I want to urge you to turn to the Lord, repent and replace. And if you need help doing that, please contact the church office. We'll be happy to help you. Now in Israel's case, drunkenness, going back to the context of chapter 28, drunkenness was a key factor in the degradation of society, which eventually led to their invasion, their defeat, and their exile. But I want to draw your attention specifically to verses 11 through 13 because they have another form of prophetic Significance. Notice that in verses 11 through 13, a connection and comparison is being made between the incomprehensible sound of the Israelites' drunken stammer, stammering and how foreign languages sound to people. You know, when someone's drunk, sometimes it almost sounds like they're speaking a foreign language. It's like they're just like stammering in incomprehensible sounds. And it sounds like when you're listening to a language you don't understand and you're not even familiar with, it's just all sounds to you and drunkenness leaves someone stammering like that. And so there's a comparison being made here. Look again at verses nine through 13. To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here's rest, give rest to the weary, and here's repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Now what is this? What is this line? It appears in here. It appears in verse 10 and verse 13. Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. I said that in one sense, this could be translated in English as blah, 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 blah. Because these words appear or sound in Hebrew like the babbling of a child or the mumblings of a drunk or how foreign languages sound to those who are not familiar with them. In Hebrew, this sounds somewhat like this, sav lasav, sav lasav, kav lakav, kav lakav, zer sham, zer sham. It's just babbling, like an infant or a drunk or how a foreign language can sound to people. Sav lasav, sav lasav, kav lakav, kav lakav, zer sham, zer sham. And verse 13 is saying that because they were drunkards who babble like toddlers, their judgment will be to hear orders given to them by foreign masters and those orders will sound to them just as incomprehensible as the babbling of drunks or the mumblings of infants. Verse 13. So the word of the Lord to them will be Sav lasav, sav lasav, kav lakav, kav lakav, zer sham, zer sham. In other words, 
and listen carefully, hearing foreign languages spoken to them would be a prophetic sign to Israel that they were under the Lord's discipline. He says in verse 11, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And this is in the context of a warning of judgment. That they are going to stumble backward, verse 13, be broken, snared, and taken captive. This, by the way, is mentioned very directly in the New Testament where these exact verses are cited to indicate that hearing the word of God in foreign tongues was a prophetic sign, but not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 through 22. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a citation of several phrases from Isaiah chapter 28. Paul then gives the explanation. He says in verse 22, So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. This is really important for our understanding of the whole debate surrounding tongues. One side of that debate says tongues is a sign of that a believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that you're truly saved. But 1 Corinthians 14 says tongues are not a sign for believers but for unbelievers. And that statement is made as Isaiah chapter 28 is cited. So what is being discussed here? Isaiah 28 says, remember if in the Mosaic Covenant, God had said, look, if you obey, you'll experience the blessings of the land, you'll live in peace and security there in the promised land, but if you disobey, you'll be invaded, taken to exile. So hearing foreign tongues giving orders in Israel was a clear sign of judgment. It was a clear sign of judgment. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 14 it says tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. It's a fulfillment of the Isaiah 28 prophecy when he says indeed God will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. So this is one of the many, many reasons why we believe that the purpose for the gift of tongues has been misunderstood and therefore the fulfillment of that purpose which took place in the apostolic era is often misunderstood tongues on the day of Pentecost and in the apostolic age were a clear prophetic sign to unbelievers that they had rejected the Messiah and therefore were facing imminent judgment and that judgment came in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was ripped down literally stone by stone after the judgment on that generation was made clear by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD tongues as was predicted by the use of the Greek middle voice verb used in 1 Corinthians 13 ceased on their own in 1 Corinthians 13 8 it says tongues will cease and a middle voice is used which means they'll cease on their own accord in other words when their purpose has been fulfilled they will fade away 
And they ceased on their own because the purpose of prophetic warning for which they had been given had been accomplished. Again, on the day of Pentecost, tongues were a clear prophetic sign to unbelievers that they were under judgment because of their rejection of the Messiah. And so the teaching of Isaiah 28 that foreign tongues are a prophetic sign to unbelieving Israelites needs to be a key factor in our interpretation of the New Testament passages on tongues. And that, by the way, is why I feel that at least certain elements of the modern charismatic movement turn Acts chapter 2 verse 13 and Acts chapter 2 15 literally on its head. If you look at Acts chapter 2, remember the apostles are preaching and people from many different nations who had gathered in Jerusalem were all hearing the mighty works of God and the gospel proclaimed in their own languages. But in chapter 2 verse 13 it says that others, so there were those who were responding, right? Verse 11 says, we hear them in our own languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement, it says, verse 12. But verse 13 says, there were others. And these others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. And so Peter in his sermon says in verse 15, these men are not drunk as you suppose. He's addressing these mockers. For it's only the third hour of the day, right? It's ridiculous to think they're drunk. On the day of Pentecost, some were mocking the apostles, saying they are full of sweet wine. What is going on here? These mockers were saying, these apostles are up there babbling like drunken fools. Kav l'sav, kav l'sav. And they are actually referencing Isaiah 28 and making fun of the apostles in the process. They are mockers. Mockers always take the truth and twist it in order to make fun of those who follow it. Some of the people are like, we're hearing the word of the Lord in our own language. And others are like, ah, it's just savla sav, savla sav, kavla kav, kavla kav, zeir sham, zeir sham. They're just drunk. This is where I think the many charismatic interpreters get this passage exactly upside down. They say that the reason these mockers accuse the apostles of being drunk is because the apostles were acting drunk, stumbling around, acting, quote, drunk in the spirit. But that is not how the behavior of the apostles is described in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 11, Luke makes it clear that the people were hearing their own languages, real languages, languages of real people in real places. And there is nothing in the text that indicates that the apostles were rolling around on the ground or stumbling around like drunken fools. So what is the real significance of these mockers saying they are full of sweet wine? They are actually taking a prophetic warning which should have got their attention and they are mocking the apostles with it. They are turning Isaiah 28 on its head. And therefore they were fulfilling Isaiah 28, 13 when it says, so the word of the Lord will be to them like sav lasav, sav lasav, kav lakav, kav lakav, zeir sham, zeir sham that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. And that took place on that generation in 70 AD. 
Just as Isaiah had said, for, hearing the word of the Lord in foreign languages would be a sign of impending judgment. That happened on the day of Pentecost. It happened throughout the apostolic age and in 70 AD, the judgment fell. So the charismatic movement is turning the connection between Isaiah 28 and Acts 2 directly on its head when they try to say that babbling and rolling around like drunken fools is a good thing. No. Our friends, acting like a drunken fool is not a good thing. It's never been a good thing. It's not a good thing. It will never will be a good thing. In fact, it's the very thing which brought woe upon Israel. Isaiah 28 warns against the woe of drunkenness. And it gives this prophetic warning. Because of drunkenness, foreign invaders are coming. And when they say, work, work, it's going to sound to you like blah, blah. And when they say, faster, faster, it'll sound to you like more blah, blah, blah. God's going to speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. They're going to go stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. And therefore, as Paul says, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. As we close, I want to return, though, to the personal. In a room this size, there are almost certainly a number of people who are really slipping deeper and deeper into alcohol addiction, to enslavement, to drunkenness. You're probably telling yourself, oh, it's just a buzz. No, you're in getting intoxicated. You're telling yourself, I don't really have a problem. No, you really do have a problem. Repent. The farther down the road you go, the harder it is to repent. So repent now. Don't wait. Go home today and empty the bottles. Go home today and fall on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive you for swapping him with it and then devote yourself to being filled with the Holy Spirit grace is there for you grace to forgive grace to transform so let me pray for you in that Lord it would be highly unusual if in a group this size and with those who may be listening online if there's not someone who is enslaved to alcohol who's committing this horrible substitution of the Holy Spirit for alcoholic spirits. Lord, help them to cast that idol far from them, to repent and to then replace all of those areas of life with the Holy Spirit, that they may be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, because it is your Spirit who produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Lord, for those who are enslaved to alcohol, rescue them, free them, fill them with your spirit and produce in them the fruit of the spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand.